Matthew chapter 1, please. Matthew chapter 1 for a Bible study. If you don't have sermon notes, they're in the bulletin. Otherwise, the ushers have a few of those so you can follow along as we do a brief study this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, towards the last few verses, we read these words. When the angel is talking to Joseph, he makes this comment. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord of the Lord by the prophet saying behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us then Joseph being raised from the sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not until they brought forth their firstborn son and called his name Jesus there's times when as parents we all know that experience, that thrill, that one of the things that comes with the anticipation of a child is trying to figure out the names of the child and coming up with something that is novel, that is unique. And we are getting and living in a society that it is really novel and unique as far as names. We talked about this this past year at the Vacation Bible School, how there were so many different names that we couldn't figure out what the names were, how to say them more than normal. Well, we know that at times giving names can be fun, it can be challenging, it can be a regret by some of us who are named years later. We will figure out why did our parents call us names like Wayne? It just doesn't make sense, especially the title. You know, you say, okay, what it means. People like the, you know, what it means. Well, my name doesn't have anything that's really cool. It means wagon maker. So it's not like you're beloved or whatever, you know, that you get. In Bible days, they used to name people based upon different characteristics different traits. And so they would name somebody red because of the red hair. They would name because of, you know, being bold and strong like Simon Peter, those different types of names. And sometimes that happens. I, I know that one of our children adopted a name that we didn't intend, but it was their characteristic that we would say to them so often, no, no, don't do that. No, no, don't do that. No, 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 no. And so when Pastor Tony was a child, they'd have people ask, what's your name? No, no. No, no, he just, he just, he adopted it. And it kind of reflected on what we must have said to him an awful lot. Jesus is given many different names. There are a whole, a whole variety of names through the scriptures that are given. Some of his birth names are really interesting to study. And at times in the past, come Christmas season, we looked at some of these different names. And we looked at the different titles that were given to him, the descriptions that were given to him. The one I'd like to focus on just this morning for a brief time is that name Emmanuel. The girls sang, sang about it. We've sing, sung about it. We talk about Emmanuel. We see it on our cards. We see it at this Christmas time. It's a very simple title. It's a very simple name. And in the original language, it just means God with us. My question is this. The question is, was this a misnomer? Was it the right name? Was it proper that Jesus was called God with us? In other words, let's rephrase our study this morning. Let's do more of an apologetic study this morning. Let's talk about this. If Jesus were God, well, then he needed to act a certain way or do certain things that a God-man would be. Or let's rephrase it. If God were to become a man, what would he be like? What would we expect? What would people who don't even go to church, 
who don't even believe. What would they say if God became flesh, what would this person be like? There are several characteristics that stand out that you and I in just simple common sense logic would figure it out that we would say, okay, if God became a man, we would expect certain things to happen. We would expect this, number one. We would expect that if God truly became a man, that he would have a very unusual entrance into this world. It wouldn't be the same as yours and mine. It would be something unique, something novel about his arrival. Now, we understand that Jesus' arrival in many ways, his birth was similar to the birth that frequently happens, that some of you who have the babies, who have the nursery, you went through that, that ordeal that Mary went through. So there's a similarity in the sense of the birth and the process, except for his was unique. Far more unique than any of us, than anybody else, in several different facets. One is the fact that his gender was accurately predicted thousands of years beforehand. It was talked about this boy who was coming. Now, prior to the idea of the, the different tests and the different, uh, the different ways of looking and examining the child in, in the womb, well, there used to be years ago the idea that you must be having a boy because... You're carrying the boy on this side. Or ma, the lady, you must be having a boy because you sleep on this side. You must be having a girl. We were told this. Our doctor told us that we were going to have, when, the, when it's all said and done, we had four, that two of them were going to be boys because of the heartbeats, and two of them were going to be girls because of the heartbeats. The problem was the boys were girls and the girls were the boys. It was totally opposite of what the doctor said. And even with ultrasound, is there the possibility, the remote possibility of making a mistake with the gender? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, you know of people, I know of people who have decorated the entire room, they have repainted, they have put the names on the wall only to find out, whoops, the ultrasound was wrong. Well, Jesus' birth was unusual in the prediction of the fact that it was stated it's going to be a boy hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before he was birthed, the town where he was going to be birthed, the place he was going to be birthed was accurately described in Scripture and predicted down to the little village of Bethlehem that Micah had told about that said that this is where it's going to happen some 700 years before he was born. You and I, we've, some of us have had that experience. We hoped that we wanted to get to that hospital at that time and see that doctor, and it didn't happen. But Jesus' birth was unique in that the prediction was exactly fulfilled. But we all know that the most unique part of his birth was his conception. That Jesus was conceived totally different than the rest of us. That Jesus was a miraculous conception. We read in Scripture, behold, a virgin shall bring forth a child. The son, the son shall be born. He's going to be Emmanuel. Now some will argue, and you'll have some that will even be on the internet this day describing their views and decrying the idea that Christ was, was miraculously born and they will say, well, the word means that it was a young lady. It doesn't mean a virgin. You just cannot change the language of the ancients. The ancients used a word parthenos that can only be the idea of this virgin gal. We see in Scripture how that came to pass, that Mary herself was surprised when the angel said, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. Mary's response was, I don't see how this can be. I've not gone through that process of knowing a man, being intimate with somebody. And the angel responded and said, your child's going to be unique. Your child is going to be God's child in that the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and there will be that power of the highest upon you and the God who create man out of dust will create a child in your womb 
without the normal natural process. And this child will develop in your womb and you will give birth. And even when you give birth, you still as a virgin will have this unique, one and only in the entire world, in all of human history, a unique birth that Jesus Christ came from a virgin. So the Son of God coming or God with us, we would expect He would have an unusual entrance into the world. And He did. One that is solely and totally unique to Him only. As I think about it, what else would we say? If God came in the flesh, what else would we expect? He would live an unusual life. Totally unusual if He were Emmanuel. He wouldn't live the way you and I would live. He would live superior type of lifestyle to you and I. He wouldn't be caught up with the silliness of the conflicts that often happens with the petty things when we're in that pre-junior high age. And you get into those little friendship fights. We would expect him to be far above that. We would expect him not to struggle and to have those same type of angers, disobedience, temper tantrums that the rest of us struggled with. We would expect that he wouldn't have the rage that some of us still struggle with. That he wouldn't have the, the gossiping tongue that some of us still struggle with. The propensity to lie, to try to deceive at times. We would expect him to be totally different. And Jesus was. We have stated in Scripture multiple times that he lived better than the rest of us. It is stated very clearly that in him there was, there was no sin. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, absolutely none, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Throughout scriptures, we have it described that Jesus was an individual totally different from us. In fact, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he asked them at times, are you going to accuse me of something? He asked them for a reason. He wanted them to respond. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. When we do weddings, certain questions happen. Certain answers come up. But there is one question that I am not going to ask when I do a wedding ceremony, and it is this. If anyone knows the cause why these two should not be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. There's a simple reason why I won't ask that in a ceremony. Do you know why? Somebody might answer. <laughs> After they've gone through all of that, that difficulty and that planning, somebody might speak up and then what do we do with that somebody? What do we do with that answer? Well, Jesus is talking to a crowd and he risked it. He said to this crowd, he said, okay, what do you condemn me of? What do you find fault in my life? Point out something that I've done wrong. And his critics remain silent. There's a time when they wanted to persecute him even further. And he asked the question in a different way. Many good works that I've showed you, he says, for which of all these good works? He's doing it in a very sarcastic way. What, what, are, you, what are you accusing me of? What good work didn't you like? Because the bottom line is, you can't find any bad work that I've done, so you must be accusing me for a good work that I've done. Which one didn't you like? Which one was, was offensive to you? You see, Jesus was sinless. He didn't do any bad works. He didn't do anything that, that would cause people to be able to accuse him. In fact, when they accused him, they had to hire people who did what? They lied. Why is that? Because Jesus lived different than the rest of us. Even those who lived with him in the close environments during the pressured years of his life, in his three and a half year ministry. Let's take his friend Peter. One of the intimate three, three who were close to him, who had seen Jesus in all of the struggles and the battles and the, in the high points of ministry and the low points of ministry. 
What what does Peter say about Jesus? After hanging around him for three and a half years, he makes this comment. Who did no sin, neither at any time was there lying or deceit found in his mouth. Who later on said this, as a lamb without blemish or spot. He's saying that this Jesus, his bestest of friends, he is not trying to be foolish. He's not trying to overlook. He is stating a simple statement that he says, I found absolutely nothing wrong in his life. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. He didn't violate any of the commands. He didn't, he didn't ever do something that was sinful. Could your friends say that about you? Could your family say that about you? Jesus' own family, his cousin John, who, who stayed with him, who knew him before, said he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Jesus, unique. This one who came, lived a totally sinless life. In fact, his enemies could not find anything that he had done wrong. When they make comments about him, like Pilate, Pilate asked the third time, he said, what has he done wrong? I find no fault in him. And he isn't even a kind man to Jesus. He's not wanting to be his friend. He is trying to keep a riot from starting, and he's looking for some reason to accuse and to discipline, to punish Jesus, and he says, I can't. I'm a man, a governor that's supposed to operate by principle of justice. Justice says there is nothing that this man has done wrong. Because of peer pressure, he gives in. But he couldn't find anything wrong. The man who executed Jesus, who led it, said, here is a righteous man at the cross. Jesus' own betrayer, Judas, says afterwards, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas, who, who was against Jesus and turned on him, could not find any fault in him. You see, Jesus had no fault for anyone to find. Even those who met him for just a short period of time, they knew there was nothing wrong with him, nothing that he did that was evil. The thieves on the cross, they have this conversation. One says, don't you fear God? He said, we rightly deserve to be hanging on this cross, but not this one. He has done nothing wrong. He does not deserve the same punishment. The Scriptures is filled with comments time and time again that Jesus lived an unusual life in that he was sinless. We would expect that from somebody who was a God-man. We would expect them to live different from us, to live at a higher level. In fact, we would expect this. We would expect if a God-man came to this earth, he would do unusual deeds. He would do things that Superman could do. He would be Marvel's superior comic hero, far above all of them that we get so enamored with and have the movies about with this Jesus, had far more power than any of them. The Scriptures makes it clear that when the disciples of John came to talk to Jesus and say, are you really, because John was confused, so he sent his disciples to say, is he the right one? I'm in jail. I don't understand what's going on. Is Jesus the real Messiah? I predicted he was. I thought he was. I baptized him. Are you really the one? And Jesus responds, go your way. Tell John. Tell him how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised. Jesus portrayed power over all different situations, over every single disease that you could name at that day, Jesus showed the power. And not in a limited sense that he wore out after a period of time. It says in multiple times in scriptures, he healed all of those who were at a city or in a field where they gathered about him. So he had, lun- he had this limitless power to heal diseases. 
We know as well that he had this power over nature itself. He could walk on the water. He could calm the storms. He could multiply the breads. He could even handle the creatures and tell the creatures to go into the nets. We know that Jesus had power that was phenomenal in that he overcame the most powerful creatures upon this earth. And they are not the elephants. They are not, you know, the whales. They are not the dinosaurs. The most powerful creatures on this earth are the angels. And especially the fallen angels who are opposed to us, Jesus could handle without a problem. He had this amazing power. The power over death, disease, Death where he could raise a man who had been buried now for a period of several days, raise a son during the course of his funeral procession, raise a young lady whose parents were just beside themselves with grief. This Jesus had power. This Jesus had amazing power. In fact, many other signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the gospel. He goes on, for if they should be written, I, every one of them, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. They are so many displays of miraculous power. And what always is amazing to me is the Jewish leaders would come and say, show us a what? A sign right after he did miracles. Jesus had this power. And we would expect that from a God-man. We would expect this. We would expect a God-man would speak different than the rest of us. He would speak in such a way that would move people. That would present truth that is so profound but in a simple way. Did Jesus speak in a profound sense? Did he communicate better than the rest of us? Hmm. We read these words. It says that his hometown people were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. We read that when soldiers were sent by the Jewish leaders to arrest him, they come back without Jesus. The leaders say, you know, why haven't you brought him? And they respond, never spake a man like this. Jesus was unique in the way he presented the most profound, the most... The most um, in-depth teachings, he could make them so simple that we as little children could understand them. He spoke like no other person, which we would expect from a God-man. We would expect from a God-man that their life would have a profound, lasting impact upon history. I'm not even going to talk further about this one. Isn't it a simple fact that Jesus has had a profound impact haven't nations been moved? Haven't armies marched? Haven't schools been built? Hasn't education changed? Haven't hospitals been built in just a social way of the compassion that Jesus had, uh, the impact of his compassion upon his followers and the generations? In fact, why are you here this morning? It's because of the lasting impact upon, of Jesus Christ. His life was so unique so, so different from everybody else. We would say this. If a God-man came to this earth, we would expect that God-man to meet the needs of people around him. To minister. To serve. Well, we know that he did that in some ways. We know that he did these many, many different miracles. To meet the needs of the lame, the blind, the hurting, the hungry, those who were poor, those who had the leprosy. We understand that he had all of this ability and he met needs that were profound. He met the need of the mother who was grieving. He met the needs of the sisters who were grieving. He met the needs of those who were social outcasts that had no hope or no help. He met their needs. 
He met the needs of the thousands who were hungry. He met their needs. But let's go beyond that. Let's go beyond the physical needs. Jesus addressed the most profound needs of the human race. What are they? Well, throughout scriptures, Jesus, as he was speaking, he multiple times made allusion to our great needs. The needs that sometimes we don't even understand. We didn't even know we had. And yet Jesus addressed them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He's talking to the crowds. And he's saying to the crowds, come unto me you who are laboring, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to people who are church-going people, who are temple-going people, synagogue-going people, who felt absolutely overcome by all the rules and the regulations that their leaders had placed upon them. They felt they could never achieve, they could never arrive, they could never satisfy the demands spiritually that had been placed upon them. They didn't even know all the rules that they were supposed to be keeping. Their rulers, their spiritual leaders kept on making up new rules and threatening them that if they didn't do what the spiritual leaders said, they would withdraw grace from them and they would end up in hell. And as a result, these people were burdened. They were oppressed. They were heavy laden. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you the rest or the peace, the inner peace that nobody else can provide, that no church can provide, no preacher can provide, no charitable deed can provide, I can give it to you. In fact, he goes on a little bit further. And he uses different stories, different life illustrations to show our great need. We have, we have basic needs. We need water. We need food. We need shelter. Well, Jesus used those basic needs to imply that we have deep, deep needs, not just for physical water and physical food, but for spiritual water, spiritual food. He talks to, the, to his disciples at one time where he's in Jerusalem at the feast and he announces out loud after speaking to the disciples says, if any man in this whole area of the temple, if any of you thirst, any one of you, come unto me and drink. He's using that same illustration. He's talking to the woman at the well and he says these comments, whosoever drinks of I shall give shall never thirst but the water. He goes on, he says, the water I give him shall be in him and a, water, a well of water springing forth unto everlasting life. We thirst. We know that. We speak, we get thirsty like right now. Okay? We want to have that drink. And the more we think about it, the more we want it. And Jesus says, you don't even realize you have a thirst, you have a need for spiritual water to refresh your spirit. Your spirit that is all beaten down by sin, by the tormentor, by Satan himself, by your own greed, your own selfishness, your own, your own you know, personal focus. He says, you need spiritual reviving. And it comes by the water that I give. And he goes on, he says, I will give you bread of heaven. I would give you like the Jews in the wilderness who, have, who were marching, they needed the manna from heaven. He says, I'm the manna. I'm the bread that satisfies. I'm the bread of life, and he that comes to me and eats of me shall never, ever hunger again. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. The great need that I didn't mention before besides the food and the water and the shelter is light. We need light. Jesus preaching at one time in the temple at the feast of the, of the light, 
The Hanukkah type feast, he says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light for the guidance, for, for the assurance, for the protection, for, for giving that comfort, giving that warmth that light gives. Jesus gives. He has. He gives it, and he says, we need, it. We need help. One author put it this way. He said, talking about the gift that Jesus gave, he said, if our greatest need was information then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was technology, to be able to know more about the computers and the sciences that way, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need as people were money, then God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need as individuals is pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. If our greatest need was forgiveness which it is, God has sent us a Savior. And so we look and we say, okay, this God-man, he would address mankind's greatest need, and he did. He came to provide life, life everlasting, more abundant life, that your joy may be overflowing. God-man, if he came... We would expect this. He would have a different purpose for living. He would have a, more, a higher purpose for living. Let me see if I can phrase it this way. You and I, oftentimes, we are asked, you know, when we were little, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you remember some of the things you wanted to be when you were youngsters? You want to be pilots, doctors, nurses, teachers, mommies, daddies. You, wanted, you had a whole variety of different things. When I was growing up, I still remember in the fourth grade, drawing a picture, because I was in a Catholic grade school, I was drawing a picture and the nun said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I drew a, uh, myself as a priest who was elevated to a bishop in the Catholic church. The irony is, according to the Bible, I am one. <laughs> but we had all these dreams. You know, in junior high, what do you want to be when you grow up? Then I had it together. In junior high, I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a politician. <laughs> I had all those dreams. Then I had a dream. Then I had this idea, I want to be a rock star. Well, that's gone because when my hair went, I couldn't be a rock star. So that, that, I wanted to be a sports, an athlete. I want to be, I want to be, because, you know, the Vikings then were, were playing where they would have winning seasons. So I wanted to be a, a sports, you know, guy, a, you know, a great athlete. Yeah, well, that, it, you know, I told you my wrestling match, first time I was out, I got pinned in less than three seconds. So I, I, none of those things, but we, we have dreams. We have ideas of what we want to be. And you know what's interesting about them? They usually focus about us. Success. Popularity. In fact, we want that as parents for our kids. We want them to rise. Be seen. That's not Jesus. His was a whole different purpose. His purpose was very, very interesting. Jesus says... I came to seek and to save that which was lost. His purpose was not about him. It was about others and only others. His purpose in his life is described in John chapter 10. I was reading an article. 
they were doing one of these interviews on the street. They were talking to different people, asking the question, you know, what are you, what are you doing this Christmas? And people are talking about, you know, I'm doing this, I'm getting the shopping done, I'm doing this. And then they started asking the question, after they asked, you know, where are you at with your gift giving? They started asking, do you know what Christmas is all about? And one of the interview, uh, interviewees answered this way, this way, said, I'm really not sure what Christmas is all about. I think it's a religious holiday. I think it's the time when Jesus died. You know, in a way, that person was absolutely right. Not? Because if we understand Jesus' purpose of living, his was different than the rest of us. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Gives his life. You see, Jesus didn't come to live like we want to live and fullness and enjoyment and, and achievement. Jesus came to die. His whole life was focused on, I lay down my life for the sheep. His, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. Jesus clearly came for a higher purpose than the rest of us live. He came to die. We come to live. He came to die so that we could really live forever. He is God. Clearly he's God because he had a higher purpose. I'll give you this thought. He is God because a God-man would be one who would not suffer the death that we suffer. To be overcome by it. A God-man we would expect not to be gathered at a funeral, walk away, and he remains there for generations like so many other spiritual leaders of different religions. They are still in the grave or have turned to dust. But the God-man that we worship this morning, yeah, it's true, he died. There is no doubt about it. We can give you the multiple proofs that he really died. He physically died. The soldiers who were there, they made sure he died so they wouldn't. They speared him. They made sure that right below that heart, that the, that pericardium was ruptured, that his heart was literally ruptured, that he bled water and blood. He died. He died. There's no doubt about it. His family dealt with his body. They would have known if he was just passed out. They would have seen it. They laid him in a tomb. They sealed the tomb. The fact is, he was dead. He died. And so there was the sorrowing that took place because his disciples and his mother, they didn't understand right away that as God-man, he would not suffer the same type of lasting death that we would suffer. As the God-man, Jesus rose. He overcame death. Oh, we know this is a fact as well. How? Well, he got the empty tomb. Those who were his critics who were against it, if they, didn't, if they wanted to prove that this was all a falsehood, all they had to do was take all the people and show them the body in the grave. But they couldn't because there was no body in the grave. He had resurrected. We know that he was alive because of his many appearances. Those who say, well, it was because of you know, the bad pizza that his friends ate, they saw Jesus. Not 500 at one time, not in multiple settings at multiple times, different occasions. Jesus physically was alive. This wasn't an apparition. He was physically alive. The same body that was in the grave came out of that grave different than anybody who had ever lived before him. And since Jesus rose physically, proved it by the exact same wounds that he had suffered on the cross. He ate with those people. He dined with those people. He walked with them for 40 days. Jesus 
physically arose from the dead. Death could not conquer him. That's the God-man that we celebrate today. That he is alive. That he had power over death that, that makes us, causes us the greatest pain in the entire world. The death of a loved one. Well, Jesus overcame it. He overcame it because he's a God-man. He is different. He is superior. There's no doubt about it. In my mind, there's absolutely no doubt about it. He is Emmanuel. He is God in the flesh. All these simple proofs prove he is a God-man. He is God in the flesh, which means that this morning it is my obligation and your obligation to give him the worship he deserves. He is superior to us. He is our God who came in the flesh, whose birth we celebrate. He deserves our praise, our adoration. He deserves our gifts, our gift of worship, our gift of obedience, our gift of prayerful reverence. But something else that strikes me is not only that, that worship that his friends and his followers of that day, that they recognized and they responded to and they worshiped him and when they got a hold that he was God in the flesh, they, they yielded. They just said, whatever you want me to do. But something else that strikes me is this. This God-man deserves my faith and trust. He is so amazing, so different he deserves our total, complete trust in all times, in all phases. I need some help. Ben Patrick, are you in here this morning? Where'd he go? Hey, Ben, do you want a gift? Come on up here. Poor Ben just had his wisdom teeth out. Oh. So I was thinking this morning, I want to be generous. I want to live up to the standard they have. I have a gift for you, Ben. Okay. You can just stand there, dude. You don't have to say anything. Your cheeks aren't as swollen as they were. Which one hurts the most? <laughs> that one? Both even. Both even? So if I hit either one of them, you're going to hit me back? <coughs> You'll be tempted to, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> I have a gift for you this morning. Okay. Do you want a gift? Do you know how checks work? Okay. A check is worth money, maybe. Okay. So I wrote a check out here this morning, and it's for a certain amount of money, and I didn't put anybody's name in it. Okay. You can write your name in it. Okay. And then it's yours. Do you know what you do with it? You put it in a bank. You put it in a bank. Oh. And you can leave it there. Or to get the money and spend it. Yeah. And you can buy somebody a gift. That beautiful girl. No. Or your pastor. Okay. Here's what you got to do. Okay. I'm giving you a gift. Okay. It's got no name on it. And it's for a certain amount of money. And you can have it. What do you have to do to get it? Okay. What else? You could ask for it. What else do you have to do? That's it, man. You got to take it, right? Then what else do you have to do? Thank you. you can say thank you. That's great. You were taught good manners. All right. Okay. <laughs> what, is it, what good does it do sitting in the box? Nothing. Nothing. So you have to do what? You have to take it. You have to then go to a bank. 
oh, by the way, in the meantime, you have to trust that I'm telling you the truth, right? And you have to trust that my wife deposited my money in the bank <laughs> to cover this check, right? And so when you go to the bank, it's going to be your act of trust, right? That you cash it and you get it. You're going to trust me? There you go. You got it. You got the monies. Go ahead. Okay. In the same way, God is giving you a gift this morning. But you have got to take the gift. You have got to trust that God has enough resources of forgiveness to give it to you in his bank of grace. Then you've got to trust enough to say, apply it to me. Put it in my account. Have you ever done that? Have you ever in your life up to this point came to a point where you said, God, I'm going to believe you are the greatest of givers and you offering me eternal life, I'm going to take it and I'm going to cash it in this day. I'm going to ask that you forgive me of all my sins and give me eternal life and I'm going to trust you for it. If you haven't done that, here's the gift God wants to give you this morning eternal life. For whosoever, including you, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to do that? Do it right now.